Have you been in a situation where you decide things based on your situation and forget to think about how that works out in terms of trusting in God? Now, it's a very common challenge for me and I suspect for some of you as well. Now, in our passage for today, we will see what the Bible has to say about this and hopefully it helps us to think through our actions. Now, as we look at the entire passage, we will see just like, just like last week, this passage is also a form of sandwich. So we see David's story in chapter 27 and 29 forming the outer layer or the bread of the sandwich. And we see Saul's story in chapter 28 in the middle as the meat of the sandwich. But more than just being a sandwich, our passage here is also about tracing the story of these two kings, David and Saul. And this story is going to make more sense to us in two more weeks when we have looked at chapter 30 and 31. And then we'll see the full picture of what the author is doing with the structure. But for this week, we're going to focus from 27 to 29. Point 2a. So with this then, we come to the first part, chapter 27, verses 1 to 7. And here, we see David living in Gath with his followers. And David is seen here seeking Achish's favor, gaining a little town to his name, where he stays on for more than a year. Now, Achish is a Philistine king. And the reason David is here is because he feared that Saul will kill him one day. And friends, this is the same David from last week who so bravely declared that the Lord shall set things right and protect David. And suddenly here, without any explanation, David does a 180 and is suddenly back to the same mindset he had back when he panicked and ran to Gath for the first time. You remember that, where he pretended to be a crazy guy to have to escape? And now we see David again in the same place, even under the same king as last time. We would be tempted to ask at this point to David, are you crazy, man? However, this time, David got lucky. The king didn't treat David as a threat, but he was pleased with him so much that he even gave him a town to rule. So is it really luck? Well, it's worth thinking about, isn't it? Now, what we can see is that this is not the action that we would have expected from David, especially since we have seen how he's been growing to trust in the Lord, right? He's been growing steadily in his faith, and here you would have expected a great show from Israel's king, yet we come to this chapter and it looks like he has regressed. And he's making decisions that highlights his weakness in believing in God. Now, some of us may be troubled to see our hero acting in this way, but God teaches us something even through David's weakness. So the way the author puts the passage as a sandwich, which alternates the story of David, then Saul, it's kind of hinting that we are meant to see that there are similarities between David and Saul. Today, you'll see both of them fail. But we want to see that there is a difference between the two of them. And that would be the point of the passage. D. So we move to the next segment, verse 8 to 12. 
David finds himself in a position that's not ideal. He's away from Israel, right? That means he can't be the savior of the people like he was back then. Even worse, he is now working for a Philistine king, the enemy of his people. So what will David do? Well, we see that David goes and he whacks the Geshurites, the Gergesites, and the Amalekites. In fact, David doesn't just go and fight them, but he exterminates them down to the very last person. I know this sounds brutal and cruel, but remember that these are the people that God told the Israelites to fight and destroy even since the time of Joshua. This is the enemy that God's king is called to destroy. However, don't you be quick to say, okay, let me also destroy my enemies, right? So don't be too quick to call for a war or a, or a crusade. This command to destroy people was a specific command, right? It's for that specific people at that time and under that special circumstances. The king that we follow now, Lord Jesus Christ, he has a different plan for us. He teaches us to turn the other cheek, to not live by the sword, to submit, and to suffer for the sake of the salvation of even our enemies. So I don't really think anyone here is going to declare holy war, but just in case. Lah. So what are we seeing here? Right? David is doing secretly what Saul failed to do when Saul was told to devote to destruction the Amalekites. So David is settling that issue with the Amalekites, and as a bonus then, he includes the Geshurites and the Gergesites as he destroys them. <coughs> so even in this self-imposed exile, even working for a Philistine king, David still continues to serve the people of Israel. He still does what God would require of his king. However, there's one thing to note, right? Now we see that David gathers the spoils. He gives them to Akish to maintain his deception. Because if he doesn't, then he won't gain favor with Akish and his future will be uncertain. So what David should have been doing here is actually devoting everything to destruction. Right? Which is something that Saul failed to do. But because of how he has chosen to achieve this, now he is not able to do it perfectly as, <coughs> sorry, as God requires. So he has to maintain his safety by pleasing Akish instead of relying on God. So we are meant to see that while David is doing some good, there are still problems. Why? Because the good that he does is built on a bad foundation not trusting in God to begin with. So next, we can also see <clears throat> that David is being pretty clever, right? He manages to convince Akish that he was in fact attacking other people who are not allied with the Philistines. Right? But if Akish knew who David is actually attacking, he will be in big trouble because they were the allies of the Philistines. 
So by destroying them, David is actually weakening the Philistines from within. So this is another practical reason why David has to kill everyone. So that the news of David's subterfuge will not reach the king. But see. So what are the consequences then of David's action? So we go to chapters 28, verse 1 to 2. And now we see that because of how much Achish has come to trust David, he now expects David to join the Philistine army to go and fight the Israelites. And this battle is going to be the big one where Saul's fate is going to be decided and by extension, Israel's fate. And so it looks like David is now stuck into joining that battle. And imagine friends, how will Israel accept David if this plan works out? David joins the Philistine army, right? After he has said that he's not going to touch the Lord's anointed and all. So if David was fighting for the Philistine in that battle, Saul dies, Israel's armies are defeated, do you think the Israelites will ever be able to accept David as their king? It doesn't matter, right, if David had actually some secret plan to do good, because all they will see is David is standing together with the Philistines. He's still going to be rejected. So though his plan, cunning as it may be, it has actually put God's plan in jeopardy. Because God's plan is for David to be Israel's king. So what's happening here so is meant to be a surprising development. And the author then leaves us in suspense. He shifts the scene and goes straight to Saul in order to prolong the tension and to make a point. Right? Part D. Now what can we learn so far? So we see that David does things by relying on his own strength and not entrusting God. And where does it end up, end up getting him? Into trouble. And we too can be the same, right? Trouble time comes, we forget about honouring God, we look to number one, and we make do with what we can get. So imagine, for example, right? If you're someone who lost your job and you're very worried during this pandemic time, boom, a job offer comes. But the boss tells you, well, it's going to require you to do a little hanky-panky with the account books. Uh, maybe you need to do some things that's a little bit unethical. What would you do? Would you trust in the Lord to provide and say no to the job offer? Or are you going to say, let's just go there and see what happens. I'll try to be faithful. And then you put yourself in a position where you will be pressured to compromise. Or at the very least, to be thought of by others as someone who's going to do wrong, even if actually you don't do anything wrong. So that is point number one for today. Do the right thing by remembering God. Don't put yourself in a position of compromise and instead learn to trust that God is at work in your life. Now, things may not work out the way you want them to, but it is better to trust God no matter what the circumstances and try to do what is right. Now, if you're someone here and you realize, as I was saying this thing, actually, I'm doing things that goes against what God has called me to do, right? Well, we celebrate Reformation Day today. 
So let us remember that the main aim of the Reformation wasn't just to protest against the Roman Catholic Church. It tells us that we should go back to the Bible and do things right. That's part of the message today, isn't it? Go back to the Bible, hear what God says, and do that. So let's be seeking to change our ways. Point 3a. With that, we jump over to chapter 29 because we want to continue David's story. <clears throat> we see in chapter 29, verses 1 to 5, that when the full Philistine army gathers, David is not trusted because of his reputation. Now take note of their concerns, right? What if David decides to betray them in the midst of the battle? Now this is important, right? Because if David switches side in the middle of the battle, he will be in an advantageous position to do lots of damage and guarantee a decent chance of victory for the Israelites. Because David will know their plans, their army composition, where to strike, and his army will already be in the midst of the Philistine to do the most damage. So if David turns, it will be a disaster for the Philistines. Of course, chances are David and his men are also going to valiantly die because they are surrounded by the Philistines. The moment they betray, they're going to get it. So it's going to be a win for Israel, but it will be a terrible loss to David, isn't it? And by extension, God's plan to David. So, the Philistine army sees the risk as too scary. They rather not take it. They rather not test David's loyalty. So they tell Achish to send David back. Point B. So then we come to verse six and to eleven, and we see this conversation between David and Achish. Achish tells him that he finds no fault in David. But the lords of the Philistines have spoken, and so David can't join the army, have to go back in the morning. And interesting, right? You can see how much Achish trusts David. He swears by the name of the Lord Yahweh. He calls David an angel of the Lord. That is how well David has been playing his cards, gaining the trust of Achish through his deception in the earlier chapter. And then we see David arguing against this. But what have I done? Now you would think that David would be keen to have an excuse not to join and slaughter his own people. Right? You'd think David would be glad to take the offer. And here we see him arguing. Right? Why? Now, a few possibilities. It's not made really clear for us. Maybe David is concerned that the reason that they're rejecting him is because they found out about what he's been doing with the Gergesites, the Geshurites, and the Amalekites. And if that's the case, his secret bocho already. Lah. Then, instead of going back, waiting for the Philistine army to turn the attention on him when they're free, and then <coughs> destroy him, if David knows that they know, David's going to run away. Lah, right? Because his cover blown. So maybe this is why he's kind of like, Why? <laughs> Right? He just wants to sneakily find out if Akish knows anything. Another possibility. Maybe David really wants the opportunity to destroy the Philistines from within the ranks. Right? And he knows that it's most probable that he and his men are going to die, but perhaps through that sacrifice, his people can be saved. 
And if that's the case, then you see there's a faint echo then, right, of the ultimate son of David, through whom salvation comes to God's people through his death. And we know that David has always been a shadow of Christ, despite how imperfect David is. Either way, we don't really know from the text. We don't really know why he is asking this question. But David packs up and leaves first thing in the morning. And the story of David ends here for today's chosen passage. Now you have to go to chapter 30 to know the conclusion, the point of what's being made here. Right? But this is a good place to stop because we can look at David and Saul. Part C. Now, as we wonder what this part of the passage teaches us, we should notice, right, what's been lacking in David's thought and speech so far. Have you noticed God has not crossed his mind? God is not consulted, despite David having access to the ephod and the priest. God is not even mentioned by David, right? The only person who mentions the Lord here is the Philistine king. How ironic is that? We expect more from David, don't we? Now, we might look at the other parts, be very tempted to applaud David for being smart, for playing the Philistines, to set himself up in such a way that he's been able to weaken them and now poised to strike a blow from within. But we have to remember, that is not God's plan for David, isn't it? He is to be Israel's king. So how can he be a bad testimony by being found in the company of the Philistines? If he had joined the Philistine army, things would get worse, isn't it? How can Israel accept someone who worked with the army of the enemies of God as their king? So it looks like here, meaning well, but because he didn't trust God, David has put everything at stake here. right? So he's not seeing as God does at this point. So David's biggest mistake here is that he has not considered God's plan, but instead been only focused on his own plan. Well, fortunate for David, his plan didn't blow up in his face. Things worked out. Part D. So as we look at David here, will we rejoice in how lucky he got in escaping such a terrible situation? Or are we going to see the invisible hand of God who upholds his servant, even when he's not perfect in obedience? And that's the thing about David, right? He's not perfect. He sins, he fails. But when the time comes, he manages to remember God and comes back to his plans and purposes. Right? So that's why you're going to be anticipating, okay, okay, looks like David's in a bad part. What's going to happen in chapter 30? That one, you're going to see next week. So the real point that I think we want to see here is that God is faithful even when we are not. Right? God's purposes are fulfilled above and beyond our plans. And if that's true, friends, should we not learn to trust in God no matter what our circumstances. Now, God's plan may not include us surviving our trials. We are, after all, not David. But whatever his plan is, it is good, even if we don't like it. And that's point number two for us to take away. God is faithful and good. Trust him. 
Don't doubt God, seek to do His will. And another application to consider, when Akish mentions the Lord by name, when he swears by his name, this is like having a colleague suddenly come and mention Jesus at work, isn't it? Right? They're like, wow, opportunity, man. And what does David do? Oh, wait, he can't talk to Akish about his God because his testimony is compromised, isn't it? To Akish, David is one of them. Right? He's been fighting the Philistines' battle. He's been doing the Philistine will. He's become an enemy of Israel, ready to fight his own people. How can David now come and say, yeah, Israel is God's people and you know God is good? He's compromised. So he can't bring the good news to Akish. Right? In the same way, imagine the scenario that we talked about getting that job, right? You get the job, it requires you to be immoral. But perhaps you manage to make things work without sinning at your job, right? By God's grace, things still worked out. You didn't have to give bribes. You didn't have to falsify documents. God is so gracious, things just work out. But your boss is going to think, well, you bought in into the same philosophy. You agreed to this job. You know what it's like. So one day then, right, he comes and mentions Jesus. At this point, if you try to tell him about Jesus and how you trust in God, you try to tell about the things that God says, it's going to sound hollow, isn't it? Because he will think you are a hypocrite. He will think you're doing all the same things that I'm doing here. <coughs> Sorry. Yet now you're talking about repentance. You will be just another Christian trying to be holier than thou. So it doesn't matter if you're secretly faithful, if you are perceived as publicly unfaithful. It doesn't matter if you're secretly faithful, if the public perceives you as unfaithful, because your testimony is compromised, and you have forfeited the very meaning of going out to the world to work. You cannot be light that shines to people and calls people to come to God. You then are salt that has lost its saltiness, only fit to be discarded. So don't go there. Remember point number three then? Keep yourself holy, guard your testimony. Value it. Be willing to suffer for God's sake. Also, you can faithfully and honestly share the gospel. So avoid even the appearance of being okay with sin for the sake of the gospel. Now, point 4a. Now, with that, we come to the center of the sandwich, the story of Saul. So come with me, chapter 28, verse 3 to 7. You will notice that the text begins with, Now Samuel has died, and all Israel has mourned for him and buried him in Ramah. And this construction points us to the fact, right, that Samuel has died, reminds us Israel is lost, uncertain, because the prophet who brought God's word is now gone. Where are we supposed to put our hope now? There's uncertainty, right? And this is the question at the center of the sandwich, right? That contains the story of David and Saul. It's kind of asking us, right? So, which king can we trust? What's next for Israel? Saul, here, sees the armies of the Philistine. He gets really scared. And so he sought to find out from God what to do. And as expected, God's not picking up his call. 
right? And he shows us Saul's attitude towards God, right? He has sinned against God in so many ways with a high hand, even as far as going to kill all of God's priests. And now, without shame, he asks God, so by the way, God, what should I do? That's about as shameless as he gets, right? So the author puts this here to show us Saul's attitude towards God, right? God to Saul is just someone who's to be used when it's convenient and dumped when it's not. He has no devotion to God. He comes to God purely from a desire to use God to get what he wants. And fine, if he can't get God to help him, he's going to ask a medium. Despite the fact that mediums and necromancers have been chased out of the land because God abhors them. So knowing all of this, Saul still looks here to help complete his turn to the dark side. And this just shows us, right, there's like no limit to disobedience that Saul won't resort to, right? What's most important is getting what he wants. And that's probably a cautionary note for us. B, we then move to verse 8 to 14, and we see Saul disguise himself, went to the witch of Endor to request for her to summon a spirit. So Saul, Saul's plan is to call up the prophet Samuel so he can find out through him how to save himself. Right? The witch is very because she knows her art of summoning the dead spirits is banned in Israel and his practice means death. But then, to assure her, Saul promises her no punishment will come to her. Right? And notice how he promises. Verse 10. Saul swears by the Lord. He says, as the Lord lives, no punishment shall come. Now we know God has decreed that this practice is an abomination. And that's why Saul killed off all the practitioners. But in the height of his conceit, he seeks to redefine what God's going to be okay with. He commits blasphemy here using God's name to license the very thing that God has forbidden. And this shows us that Saul's sins have become so irredeemable because he's been piling sin on sin on sin and he's getting more desperate. And he reaches this point where he's hardened his heart that he just doesn't care about God. He just wants to get what he wants. Right? So it looks like he's still engaging with God. Actually, he's not. So Saul then asked the woman to bring up Samuel, and as he does, right, and we are surprised to see that in the text, we would wonder, right, do the practitioners of this kind of art have the ability to really bring the dead to speak to us, right? We see many cultures, religions practicing this thing, despite God calling them an abomination. Now we know the text doesn't tell us clearly, right, is it a real, is, does she have real powers or not? But my suspicion is that this woman may not really have the power to summon the dead, but rather, like the psychics, mediums, and bomo of today, she merely puts on shows to convince people. And I think that's why, in verse 12, she herself was shocked when she sees that she actually summoned the spirit. She cries out, probably in shock. And if that's the case, then this would mean that actually it's God lah, that allowed this thing to happen, and not because she was powerful. Right? C. So we come to verse 15 to 19, and we see Samuel coming, and Saul asking, what to do? 
Samuel gives a prophecy and the fulfillment of this we will see in chapter 31 and you will see that this is a true prophecy. God will destroy Saul and his sons in the battle that will take place this morning. So in continuing in his sin, in blaspheming God, he finally got an answer. But that answer is judgment. D. So this text then ends in verse 20 to 25 to show us this utter loss that Saul is in. He has ignored and rejected God. And now that he is in need, he's seeking God, God abandons him, brings judgment on him. Saul's situation is so pitiful. The only comfort this king had on his last day of his life is what a witch that he's never met before can provide. The fattened calf is killed. But this is not a sacrifice that takes away sin. For Saul, who has hardened his heart, it is too late for repentance and salvation. And even when he seeks it with tears, it will not be found. So Saul eats and heads into darkness. E. While the story ends on a bleak note for Saul, we can see what the lesson here is. For someone like David who fails and sins, he still does eventually come back to God. He was living dangerously, but finally got back on track. But this then isn't a license for us to sin and live in sin, thinking I eventually I'll get back on track. Because we could be like Saul instead, isn't it? Sin hardens our heart. And when our hearts are hardened, it would look like we're coming to God. But actually what we're doing is being like Saul. Right? Just trying to use God to get something more. And so, all we'll receive will be judgment. So be warned if you're persisting in sin. You may think you're okay, but your hearts can be growing callous and hardened that actually you won't be able to come back to God. Right? You won't even desire to come back to God. You'll just want to use God. So be cautious of your sin. Don't continue in it. Repent. Today if you can. Seek to come back to God before it is too late. And that is our fourth and final point of the sermon. Be careful of your sins. If you're not, you may go too far and no longer be able to come back. You can't be perfect and sinless, but you can train your heart to keep on coming back to God and repent of your sins. So, as a side note, since it's also Halloween, let us remember that God does abhor this kind of negative spiritual stuff. We shouldn't be quick to judge those who dress up at wishes and ghouls, but at the same time, we should be careful not to overtly glorify these kind of things or to diminish our testimony through how we participate in Halloween celebrations. So be mindful of that. So as we come to the end, let's think of our four points. Point one, do the right thing by remembering God. Point two, God is faithful and good. Trust Him. Point three, keep yourself holy, guard your testimony. And finally, Point four, be careful of your sin. So as you consider these four points, remember one important thing, right? David, as imperfect as he was, became God's instrument of salvation for his people. For Jesus, who is utterly perfect, 
He makes that perfect offering for sin once and for all through his death on the cross. How much more are we guaranteed that God will save us through that precious blood? So don't cheapen that blood by just piling on sins and thinking that, you know, whenever I need God, I call him, I'm sure he'll pick up the call. Right? See how precious the salvation from God is. And so keep on coming back to trust in God's king. So if you don't know him, if there's anyone here who's kind of, yeah, okay, that sounds interesting, then come and talk to one of us and we'll tell you more about how we can trust this king. So let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we pray that you help us to learn from this, to learn to trust you in all matters and seek to do that which is right. Help us, Father, to not live in our sins, but turn away before our sins harden our heart until the point where we cannot find salvation anymore. So help us, Father, to remind each other of these truths and to encourage each other to keep on turning to you. In Jesus' name we pray this. Amen.